Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Tonight, uh, it's Bite Into It. Um, it's Dan Salmon, it's Mays Wallen, it's Warren Davies. Dan, how are you? I'm 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 great, Warren. How are you? Doing well. Um, it's pretty windy out there and, and very kind of Melbourne, but I, I've got a big smile on my face because it's lots of fun. Well, still. we're we're allowed to be outside in it, which is which is fantastic. <laughs> take take every moment you can. Oh it, man, there's the sun on the weekend. Oh, I'm still basking it. It was really nice. It's even I, I couldn't even bemoan the masks, which were keeping my lips warm as I was kind of walking down Nicholson Street tonight. Um, mm. Everything was looking okay. Yeah. Um, Maisie, are you, are you tucked you away tucked somewhere, somewhere nice, and nice and warm? How's it going? How's it going for you? Going for you? Yeah, I've got the heater on and everything. Um, didn't quite make the trek across the river, so coming to you through the internet. <laughs> um, but yeah, happy that Dan mentioned we've crossed Solstice, so it's all up from here. And and I, yep, oh. I agree with that. <laughs> Unless you really love winter, which is perfectly okay. If you love winter, I we do love not. you. <laughs> Um, that's okay. I'm 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 doing all right as well. Um, what did I do? Oh, um, they're renovating the pool down near me, which was my kind of lockdown habit of like getting up in the morning and going mm. for a swim and yeah. sitting in the hot box and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, they did an awful job. This is slightly technically related. I was trying to figure out from their social <laughs> media whether anything was actually open there, and they would consistently say yes, we're open, and you'd go down there and nothing would be open, but their coffee shop would be open. So you'd be like, oh, uh, folks, you've got to get this right. You're like. No. That's I, I reckon that's a ploy. They they they, yeah. they want you to come down and buy a coffee, but they're not going to tell you that everything's shut because why, you wouldn't come down if there yeah. wasn't a pool to go to. Well, they lost the membership. I tell you what, because oh. like that's that, that kind of pulled me. Anyway, I got to another one. I got to the famous Harold Harold Holt pool today, yeah. um, which I'd never been to before, but I just had to for the irony mm-hmm. and go and have a swim, and it was uh, it's pretty good. Um, good evening to the very angry gentleman in the, <laughs> the spa, um, observing the limits to his own advantage. <laughs> Um, but um, oh yeah, no the, the pool and spa limit. I, I am the pool and spa limit person. Of right. I, I go down there. It's like, dude, you're the fifth person. Get out. <laughs> Have you got a lanyard? You haven't got the lanyard. Not allowed to be in here. This fo- <laughs> this person was policing it to their own advantage. And uh, anyway, it's a very long story. But um, and I've told it a couple of times. Today, Another so time. I won't do it again. Um, we have got a, a really good show for you tonight. Um, very excited to be, um, uh, I guess, talking about a, a topic that we're all very interested in. Um, over the past three years, the Australian Human Rights Commission has been consulting with and uh, touring Australia. I imagine them in a, in a land cruiser, just kind of getting around um, uh, Leyland Brothers style um, to gather feedback for a report on human rights and emerging technology. Um, we actually caught up with the Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Ed Santow, on the show Um Maybe a couple of years back, yeah, 18 months that. back, yeah. something like that, um, during the process. So we were consulted. Um, I'm not sure if he was taking notes, but uh, the final report has now been published and Laura Summers uh, caught up with him recently uh, to discuss the findings. So we'll be diving into uh, that uh, tonight in detail. Um, it's really interesting. Um, we also do have uh, a lot of news. We've got some game stuff going on. Um, we've got some events as well and some good tunes. So we'd love you to hang around for the next uh, 56 minute or so before Anthony Carew uh, swings on by. Um, 
but before we get all kind of future gazing on you, uh, we do have some news to have a chat about. And uh, Dan, there's been uh, ructions in Parliament today. There has been present present gazing, looking at what's actually happening. So there's um, been a bit of yeah, as you say, a bit of a ruckus in Victorian uh, State Parliament today. Um, the QR codes that we have been and should all be using to check in uh, to uh, various places in order to maintain um, the contact tracing efforts uh, and stop the spread of the COVID-19 virus um, have been uh, the subject of a few uh, police access requests. Now, the opposition spokesman for the police uh, brought them up in Parliament today, saying that um, they undermined public confidence in the security of the contact tracing process, and he questioned why there was no legislation to stop agencies from accessing the data, which I think is a fair enough question to be asking. Um, the the response from the government was uh, that the, there had been three incidents since December last year where informal requests had been made from Victoria Police about uh, whether they could access it, and the answer had been no. Um, the government says that there are mechanisms, mechanisms in place where if Victoria Police could prevent a crime occurring, such as a terrorist incident or if they could solve a crime and they felt that the Service Victoria check-in uh, data could assist, then the appropriate mechanism would be through the courts via a warrant. So... It looks like, um, you know, it, it, it hard to say. I, I, I think I, it, there was a lot of alarm around getting people to check in during the second first, mm. when it first, uh, I suppose, was released. Um, I, I don't know, Warren, what's your take? I just As you were describing this, I was just picturing a bunch of sheriffs just like swanning around and we're all sort of going, hey, that's a big six-shooter six you got there, Dan. Mm. Like, um, what are you using it for? And... Um, scrutiny of emergency powers and how things are different and, and to the advantage of government without our sort of clear oversight um, hasn't been strong, mm-hmm. I don't think. Yeah. It, it comes up from time to time. And I, I think they've been doing a good job talking about it in WA and what's been going on over there. But, um, yeah, I uh, I think it's strange. I, I actually thought I may have implicated myself in a crime by checking in twice to the St Kilda Coles um, <laughs> about a week or so back. If there's anyone out there looking for me, I'm definitely not in East Brunswick right now. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know if that data is counting against me, um, even though I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm, yeah. I needed I needed a jalapeno. Well, look, I mean, I, mean, I think it's a, um, it's a positive that the answer has been no when the request has come up. Yeah. Um, if, if, if nothing else, at, at least there's that level of comfort. I, I, I don't care if they want to nick one more bikey or um, than, than usual. I don't think that's uh, grounds for jumping into this data. If there was a, um, an imminent terrorist attack and there was evidence to suggest that those people had been checking into the local <laughs> coals, then sure, well, yeah. you know, that's, that's great. Go that's, for it. Um, that's that's probably a balanced decision, but otherwise, yeah, they shouldn't just be having a poke around, seeing what they can find. Yeah, I'm sure they've got better mechanisms to find out where people were, rather. Than, and I mean, in the in the end, it's about finding out where criminals are, rather than where they were, isn't it? Yeah, like if you, if they've got phones, surely you could be tracking them. They well, don't have to check in. Well, look, if Line of Duty has caught me, told me anything, it's that kind of stuff can be well and truly accessed by the police. Yeah, Maze, what, what do you reckon on this one? I think um, I'm pretty much in agreement. Like, you know, if they can't actually get a warrant because their reason isn't big enough, then they shouldn't have access. And, like, you know, um, so much of the adoption around the COVID Safe app was around, or the lack of adoption around it was over similar concerns, right, around privacy and who can access what things. And, um, yeah, I think... Especially now when people are getting really lax with checking in um, and, 
you know, just we're just kind of sick of it, <laughs> kind of bored of doing a lot of these COVID routines. Um, I think less excuses, uh, the better. <laughs> yeah. If anyone needs to track any criminals down, I, I can suggest uh, Maze Wallen, who is currently <laughs> sitting in the Millennium Falcon. Um, you can't actually see that, but we're enjoying it here on the on the Skype chat. Well, 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 um, Warren, if you're considering the Millennium Falcon to be a, a criminal vessel, then I've got some serious questions about you and uh, Emperor Palpatine, my friend. Right. Okay. <laughs> What's whose side are you on? <laughs> hey, it was a long it was a long series. You know, sides were crossed, um, double triple agents, all of that stuff. Um, speaking of uh, whose side you're on, um, there is a, a bit of talk about um, whether um, any or all of us will be going back to the offices that um, we have a, a sometimes allegiance to. Uh, the Zoom CEO. Um, uh, as actually pointed out, uh, Eric Wan, um, that uh, the five-day sort of work at the office model is is done. Um, putting aside their vested interest in this, <laughs> yes, yes, um, the Zoom CEO would yeah. say that, wouldn't he? Of course, <laughs> of course. I would like to. Th- I would like to think this is coming from a point of we've seen the data and we know that you know of the you know eighty percent of the accounts for that particular office, seventy-five percent of them are getting used still. You know, mm. you know, five hours a day. Um, what have you. But, um, yeah, he's told a – I mean, Dan, this this won't um, sort of give you courage. He's told an audience of investors about this. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> however – He told them exactly what they wanted to hear? He told them what they wanted to hear. But um, I think it it, it is um, to the conversation that you and I, Dan, have had about what incentives are there to go back if we can do everything that we mostly need to do in a social work setting, which is – get our faces together in a small mm. space and talk about stuff, then um, whether it's Zoom or whether it's, um, you know, uh, one of the Google products or we, we love using Whereby, um, we kind of don't need to do it as much. Yeah. We don't need to be in the office quite so much. Mm. Well, I mean, my my own work, uh, their pol- the policy even before this second, fourth, however many lockdowns we've had now, um, was that internal meetings, even if you're all in the office, you still need to do them via we don't use Zoom, we use Teams. Mm. So you're sitting next to someone you know, appropriately socially distanced, having mm. a meeting with them through your computer, it's like, well, this kind of defeats the purpose of coming into the office other than who wants to go for lunch. Yeah. Is that to, like, record the meeting or to have a transcript or something of it? No, it's it's purely to maintain the social distancing that we would have... We would ah. not, yeah, so, like, the, the, <laughs> the, the, rules are, the rules maintain that, you know, we can't all be in one of the meeting rooms on the side of the office because more than two people in that room mm. is breaching, con- breaching the density rules so we all sit at our desks and talk to each other when we're looking at each other and say well i can do this from home with no pants on yeah <laughs> i mean i, I wear pants. i mean that's a good reason to go into the office if you do work with dad <laughs> yeah. you know. i wear pants in my meetings if any of my colleagues are listening i wear pants in the meetings i, promise. I know isn't that a weird feeling you're like i can't log into this naked or with no pants on like even if it's just a voice call, I don't know. I've it only feels... just become comfortable wearing trackies. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. We've been doing this for 18 months. Yeah. I, I really I feel for teachers and so forth. You hear lots of I, – I think the three of us are probably doing not too badly. You hear about teachers just teaching to black black walls mm. of, of, mic, of mm. cameras off stuff. Um, so it, it is hard. But yeah. I think um, it, it is liberating – I think at first bouncing around from doing stuff in your bedroom to doing stuff on the bus to doing stuff in an, an office co- kind of sort of, then going back to the cafe 
was a little bit kind of um, overwhelming, but now it's just kind of a little bit normal. And the idea of just sitting in one place for a long time, um, especially in office, is kind of strange. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Speaking of uh, more fun stuff, though, Maze, um, Breath of the Wild, I just realised, because I always call it, called it um, Zelda, um, and I loved the game, if I am correct here. I'm obviously not the games reporter <laughs> on the show. I just went, oh, my God, there's a sequel coming out. Is this true? Yeah, so um, last week E3 happened, um, which is kind of like one of the big AAA events um, where a lot of the large publishers and large companies, um, platforms and stuff do their big announcements for what's going to be happening over the next year or something. Um, And Nintendo announced a sequel to Breath of the Wild, which is... um, their big amazing launch title for when Switch came out and it's, you know, a really huge um, kind of milestone for the whole Zelda series. The pony, just Um, riding that pony around was so fun. Well, all of the different mounts, I think, Mm. yeah, like taming the different mounts and stuff, Mm. that's very fun. I I just liked um, lighting bees on fire and then running around, but, you know. (laughs) I I know nothing about this game and I'm hearing about ponies and taming mounts and it's all getting very vulgar in my mind. It's a PG PG game. (laughs) It's a PG game? Okay, cool. Yeah. um, So it's it's one of the kind of... uh, I don't think they call it open world. I th- think they call it like uh, I don't know, one of one of the new words for open world, which is like not not so open that the game sucks. <laughs> um, um, and it has a lot of really interesting like emergent gameplay because of how the mechanics are programmed and things. It means that there's a lot of adaptive. Yeah, mechanics and stuff. So, you know, you can try, oh, what if I piff this boulder over here? What happens? And what if I stop time over here and then put a magnet on this thing? Um, And then can I fly for like 300 meters? Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) fun things like that. Um, The announcement of a sequel is interesting because it's not that often that a Zelda game has like Link to the Past 2. Or you know, Ocarina of Time too, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, it, it's funny though because I mean, it's it's because it's such a long running series in the same world with largely the same characters. It, it, it's almost like they are all a, a sequel. They're all sequels of each other in the same universe anyway. So why would you why would you go for? Call let's give it a, a, a new title, which is the same title with a number at the end of it. That's true. That's kind of weird. <laughs> um, I guess like another kind of thing that's happened um, with the Switch is there has been a little bit more free to play. There's been Nintendo has experimented with like the online passes and stuff and DLC as well. Um, so that was an, another announcement at E3 is that Hyrule Warriors is getting its first DLC. Um so, yeah, people often talk about how Nintendo watches other platforms experiment with different business models and things like that and then does the most polished version of it. Um, so I think, yeah, it'd be interesting to see them move more in towards this kind of games as a service that they have on some of their other um, titles. Mm. And, yeah, <laughs> I think it's 
they're really, really milking Zelda as they always have, you know. They're even re-releasing um, all of the old Zeldas onto Switch, you know, the old Game Boy versions and things. Um, it's but, uh, Zelda uh, is it's a juggernaut. It's yeah, up, it's up there with the longest running. Like, I mean, I'm not a gamer. I'm not a gaming expert. Even I know Zelda, like, because it's been around for as long as almost I have. So, like, exactly. it, yeah, no, long may it continue, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you? Are you, will you? Will you be purchasing Maze? Does it have the 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 MW seal of approval? Are you excited for uh, it? I mean, I don't know if I will. Um, at the moment, I'm not totally sold. Everybody, um, watch her at the Christmas. Watch her at the Christmas party. Like, <laughs> will, will Maze be uh, at the console? Um, yeah. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Um, just uh, maybe another thing uh, before we uh, get some tunes going. Um, we have been watching the online safety bill um, very carefully. Um, we've been talking about it with guests uh, on the show this year and uh, and last year. Um, it is getting closer um, uh, to, uh, I guess, a very bad place. Um, there is a, an amendment um, that... Um, would require service providers to uh, try not to take stuff down unnecessarily, uh, I guess is the, the, the simple way of describing it. Um, but it didn't actually pass. Um, it got uh, um, missed out by a vote um, to make the amendment about, um, um, which would, I guess, make a, um, a nasty bill um, uh, um, slightly less um, uh, ogre-ish. Mm. Um, so it's still kind of being shaped at the moment, um, but what we might do is just tweet out some news um, about that um, so you can have um, a bit of a read. Yeah, no, it's a, that's very much a, a watch this space kind of thing, I think. Triple R. We are very excited to uh, have a chat to um, Australian Human Rights Commissioner uh, Ed Santow, uh, who's been... Very busy um, over the past few years, uh, traversing the country, um, talking to um, Australians um, uh, in all kinds of capacities about um, how we feel about emerging technology, which we spend a lot of time talking about on the show, um, but we don't get a lot of time to to get out there and and sort of press the flesh, uh, as it were. Uh, Laura Summers um, sat down with Ed um, recently and uh, I guess really got into um, the, um, the guts of the report, um, which has been released, and we will um, uh, tweet out and put copies of the report uh, in our show notes as well. But um, yeah, um, make yourself a cup of tea, strap in, uh, it's going to be a good chat. Congratulations, Ed, on the release of this report and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much and it's really good to be with you. We're so excited to talk to you about this this work. It's um, very relevant to a lot of the topics we discuss on this show. Um, so perhaps just to kick off, could you summarize for us what are the major findings or recommendations of this report? So we, we started with, I think, a fairly optimistic view, which is that we could see how new technology and especially artificial intelligence can make our world more inclusive as well as foster economic development. And we, we were very keen to kind of point to the ways in which um, you know, our human rights can, can really be improved by the use of AI. But it's also my melancholy duty as human rights commissioner to perhaps focus a bit more on some of the risks and threats to humans. And we felt that uh, that had been a kind of a, a way of looking at this issue that was um, perhaps a little bit thin on the ground. And so we, we went really deep on a number of issues, uh, especially in relation to AI, in considering how 
it might actually threaten our human rights, especially when it's used in decision making. And what we've come up with is is quite detailed. I've, I've you know, it's 250 pages of report mm. with lots of summaries as well to make it a bit easier to grasp. Um, but but the bottom line um, is this: that things are changing quickly. So the the rise of AI is truly exponential in government and and, and in the private sector. The community have told us very clearly that they're not opposed to the use of AI, but they do see how AI engages their human rights and not just the right to privacy, which has been, I guess, the main focus of some of the human rights discussions, but a range of other fundamental rights, including the right to equality, non-discrimination, access to justice, and and so on. And so uh, I guess what our um, report makes very clear is um, as we are leaning into AI, we need to make sure that three things are always present that the use of AI is fair, that it's accurate, and that it's accountable. And so the reforms that we propose to our law, the ways that we um, recommend uh, government agencies and and private sector organisations change their practices, it really all comes back to that, making sure that AI is used fairly, accurately, and accountably. Mm. And those are such great... Uh, grounding principles for AI, but there's so much devil in the detail, right? Like I, I do a lot of paper reading and like this question of fairness even is um, actually really interesting and deep because once you start asking yourself, what is fair and um, whose ethics are we privileging, for instance, it can become this like long and um, tangled web to try and even establish what is fair or how do you, um, assess whether fairness exists or not in a system. Um, so knowing that obviously there's like both legal and technical aspects of this work, how do you think about um, like from the outside of a system, looking at it, assessing it for quality, for you know these aspects of fairness and um, accountability and accuracy that you're describing? And um, who do you think needs to be involved in that work? Look, I, I think you're right. I, I do think that there's some real complexity to some of those uh, nice-sounding principles, like um, particularly fairness, but also accuracy and accountability. Um, but I also think we need to draw a clear line because, in fact, those are not new principles. They're certainly not new principles under our law. In fact, they've been around for a very long time. And so the law has a lot to say about what um, are the requirements for a decision to be fair um, and and accurate and accountable. And so uh, I think one of the the mistakes that we collectively have all made um, as we've we've come to kind of describe these these questions as, as questions of ethics is that it kind of encourages us all to sit under a Bodhi tree and have very kind of long conversations that don't necessarily lead anywhere, at least lead anywhere concrete, um, about those those big questions about fairness. Um, and in fact, we need to be much more practical. We need to say, okay, our law already says that in order to, for example, ensure that you're not discriminating against someone on the basis of their race or their age or their gender or their disability, these are the things you have to do. And in a sense, it doesn't matter whether you're making a decision 
using an abacus and kind of the least, you know, techie environment using only humans, or the opposite of that, using the most sophisticated form of deep neural network, you just have to make sure that you comply with those basic legal requirements. And if you've done that, then you're 90% of the way there. The, the, the questions about ethics are really where the law is silent and appropriately silent, where there, there shouldn't be reform. And that, that's where um, companies and, and governments, for that matter, can, can make choices about you know, where they go beyond what the, the bare legal requirements are. But, but I guess the point we're making is, at the very least, you've got to make sure you're complying with the bare legal requirements before you have that conversation, which is, in a sense, the, the icing on the cake. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's so much in that. And sorry, my mind went off in like 10 different directions as you were speaking just then. Um, but I, I completely agree with you that practicality and kind of focusing on avoiding what you might think of as the most egregious forms of unfairness, as opposed to thinking about achieving perfect fairness, um, is, is the right way of framing the problem. Um, but certainly when you when you talk about um, machine decisions, you do have to grapple with the fact that uh, you know all we're doing is finding statistical patterns in what's happened historically. Um, so often the challenge is not just uh, establishing whether or not there's unfairness coming out at the decision end, but looking back over history and deciding if it was unfair to begin with. And I think that's a, a challenge that many tech companies feel unprepared for and don't really have tools in their toolkit to know how to tackle. Um, do you have any recommendations for people who might be thinking, well, I'm looking at his, some historical data and I don't know whether it is like fundamentally entangled in bias or unfairness and I shouldn't be using it as unsafe to use or not? Yeah, I mean, I think this is perhaps a moment for me to offer some kind of tough love to the private sector and, and to government as well. And that is, you know, if, if we were talking about something like a, a new um, medical drug and, you know, you basically had the same lead in, which is, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, we don't really understand, um, then the, the answer would be very clear. It would be don't use that drug until you understand it better, until you can be really confident that it is safe and that it's going to be um, effective in in the population that you're using it on. And the same is true of AI. It's true of everything, right? But, but, but we must apply that same basic common sense to the use of AI. So if you don't understand your data, the, the data that, that your machine learning system is being trained on, and you fear that there may be uh, injustice or prejudice or bias, whatever you want to call it, that kind of creeps in through that historical data and you can't do anything about it, then don't do it, right? Like then it's not safe to use. Um, we put out a technical paper at the end of last year that was exactly on this topic. It was, it, what it did was it took a, a, a kind of a decision-making scenario that, that was fairly typical and we we showed using synthetic data in a kind of a system experimentation how uh, algorithmic bias, unfairness, in other words, can creep into that um, decision-making process. And we gave sort of five key ways in which it can creep in. And then we also showed some ways in which you can treat that problem and, and, and hopefully address it. But, but the ultimate point we made at the end of that process was if you're not confident that you have uh, diagnosed 
and treated the problem, then it's not safe to use in the real world. And uh, that's just a practical, common sense observation, we would say, um, but it, it needs to be adhered to. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, we are still uh, in the era of AI hyper, at least recovering from it somewhat. Um, so I think that there's a, a, a big um, chasm between sort of the marketing promises of AI and the practical applications of it still. And um, yeah, it can be difficult for companies to know um, or to to take take seriously that uh, launching these things into the wild as essentially uncontrolled experiments is not always the right way to try new, new technology and that we might need to take a, a slower and more mature and perhaps more scientific approach to assessing um, the, the quality and the fairness and the accuracy of the outcomes before we actually think it's appropriate to release it on a, a broader population. Triple R. Yeah, interesting. Maze, what are, what do you reckon about that? What what came up for you um, listening to it? Yeah, it was totally about you know the biases in the data that our AI and machine learning things are trained on. You know, like we've already heard about um, like profiling in the US around. Okay, well, you know, if their data says that criminals are more likely to be black because that's how their police um, have, you know, put into their racism, um, then, you know, we, if we're just making robots that can't really take this on a case-by-case basis, then, yeah, we can't use that data. Um, and it's being used in other kind. There's a lot of different places where that kind of racial profiling or um, postcode profiling um, has been used and it's been found that, like, this bias just plays out on a really extreme level, like in real estate applications and things like that as well. Um, So, yeah, I liked the point um, about, well, if you wouldn't use this, you know, if you wouldn't use this, then it's not fit for the public consumption either. Mm. And, you know, how we would have to try to make new data sets. Um, But then at the same time, like, we, I don't think that we can train an AI there, there is not no, to be there is no complete, or not to be, yeah. yeah. There is no complete like, data set that would deliver a service that we would be comfortable with. No. Um, so, yeah, these services all start with something. Someone says, "Here's a sample of something." Um, yeah. Figure out the rest, AI, and AI says, "Well, it has a smoko," and says, "Well, this is probably the answer, <laughs> boss. Like, don't, don't you reckon just more of this?" Mm. What do, what do yeah, you think, Dan? Well, I, I, I think that it comes down to and the the point that James made about um, you know the the whether you remove the most egregious unfairness or whether you're striving for perfect fairness across the entire thing. Because they both have their, I suppose, they both have a bit of, we want to remove as much unfairness and remove the bias as much as possible. But is that realistic and is it achievable? Or do Mm. we just do our darndest to kind of pick the low-hanging fruit and get rid of the, the horrible, you know, 
prejudices that come out of AI based on the data data that gets you know mm. input. I don't know what 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 what's your thought? Should we be striving for the perfect, or is it is it more just we we got to do what we can? I, I think to have anything out there and in use, you have to start with something. But I, I think quite often what happens is um, once things are rolling, people just kind of say, "Well, that's the way it is," and we can't alter mm. it, shape it, fix mm. it, do a V2 that's very different to the V1. Mm. So you have to kind of put constant pressure on yourself if you're putting something out there to say, we did enough to get started and we had a limited view, mm-hmm. but we're going to we're gonna get this right rather than just, you know, um, suck it for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, a lot of this stuff, the book, it seems like the horse has already bolted on a lot of it. Like, mm. You know, the, again, the, the, what you, you were talking about just before, Maze, around you know not using biased data in the first place. Like a lot of the, a lot of the things that, like it's already out there. There's, there's, mm. there's no un, unscrambling that egg. Interesting. That's it. And I think that um, you know, when, when you say like, all right, let's put something out, see if it works, and if it doesn't, we'll do a revision. We have put something out there. It has flaws. We need to do a revision, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what Laura was also saying that we we have got to a go to the next sort of era <laughs> of AI. V- yeah. v- AI v two True, true. <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, we're going to pick up uh, Laura's interview with Ed Santo, the Human Rights Commissioner, on their report into uh, various things, uh, mainly around the uh, the fairness in uh, artificial intelligence. So let's uh, pick that up now. Triple R. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really, really good way of summarising it. Um, and to that point, one of the recommendations in the report is that um, there's this tool that you have available from the Human Rights Commission called a Human Rights Impact Assessment, and you're recommending that people um, can use that as a way of having a look at their system and trying to determine whether it's sort of uh, justifiable or appropriate for use, um, keeping in mind like the possibility of human rights impacts. Um, I'm wondering if you can describe this a bit for our listeners and tell them what it entails. Sure. So it's really an antidote to that kind of uh, cavalier approach that was perhaps popular five or 10 years ago, which was best summed up by Mark Zuckerberg saying, you know, we just got to move fast and break things. Um, We would say that if you're operating in an area where the stakes are anything other than very low. Um, so, for example, if you're, if you're making a new computer game, maybe it doesn't really matter. But if you're, if you're making a decision-making system that will actually affect people uh, in the private sector or in government, uh, then you need to be really mindful about what you're doing. And so what a human rights impact assessment would do is it would allow a really rigorous process to be undertaken before your AI or algorithmic system goes into the real world and also after. And so, so what it does first is it, is it helps ask a, a basic question, but one that sometimes isn't asked, which is, why do you want to use AI in the first place? Is there a really strong use case for AI in this particular scenario? Um, and, and it asks, uh, you know, questions that, that we need to ask, which is, will an AI system be better um, than the state of the art that already exists. Uh, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So um, there was quite a controversial 
example um, that, that came up uh, last year in, involving the Victorian government using facial recognition in a number of uh, schools to mark the role. Um, now, I can see why one might want to do that, um, but it's not that difficult for teachers to mark their role. And uh, the, the, the privacy and other implications of using facial recognition for that purpose are very significant. And, and so it, we would say it was really clear right from the outset that that was not a good uh, use case for facial recognition in the first place. It, it was probably something that should never have gotten off the ground in the first place. Mm. Um, and so once you've gone past that, <clears throat> you then uh, have a, a, a kind of a systematic analysis of what human rights are engaged. And, and to be clear, sometimes by using AI, you can actually advance particular human rights, um, but you can also um, potentially limit them. And so uh, what that then allows you to do um, is to identify ways of addressing any kind of um, problems, any, any, any ways in which you might be impinging or limiting human rights. And then moving into a testing phase uh, before you actually test on, on real people. So you've tested in the lab, basically, first, and you only get to a point where it is safe to use on people in the wild, as it were, um, after you have kind of satisfied uh, those, those basic requirements. And then if you can, if you can overcome that um, challenge, then, then of course, um, you, you send it live. But the thing about um, AI is that uh, typically um, it is intended to and it is designed to adapt as it goes. And so when you're testing a, um, an algorithm or, or a piece of AI, uh, you can't just be confident that because you tested it um, at, you know, on day one, um, that, it will, that that testing will kind of hold true on day 100 or day 1,000. And so what you need also to do is have a rigorous process of monitoring um, the operation of your AI-powered system as it is um, operating in the real world. And that may in turn throw up new problems as well as new opportunities. And, um, and then you need to make adjustments as you go. Yeah, absolutely. There's a big body of work on the topic of model drift and what happens when the sort of shape and texture of production data changes significantly, thus changing the outputs of the model. Um, and as you say, it's it's like a, a big challenge at slash big opportunity for the industry to develop new tools um, and new ways of, you might think of course correction or, you know, improving the system as it continues in production. Um, Look, I've really enjoyed this discussion, and honestly, we've barely even touched on all the topics in the report, but we're already at time. Um, so perhaps we can close by saying uh, if our listeners are interested to learn more or check out the full report, could you tell them where they could find it? Absolutely. So you can go to tech.humanrights.gov.au. You can download the full report and dive into the detail. We also have gone through a number of the key themes and given people more bite-sized chunks to um, to have a look at and see where we're heading. Um, there are some videos, some summaries as well. So uh, there are lots of ways of engaging with it and we're very interested in hearing from the community um, what your views are. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's. I do appreciate that you made a dedicated effort to um, make some of this content a bit more accessible and you don't have to read the 
190 plus pages to get a, a lot of this stuff out of it. So um, thank you for all of that excellent content work your team has done. And um, thank you, Edward Santo, for joining us to discuss the work. It's been a pleasure. There you go. Um, a big chunk of work. You can read the entire 117 pages if you want to. I, I look, at, to, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic and one we've been trying to unpack here for you know the last couple of years, and I don't know if we'll ever really get to the bottom of it. It's it's, it's a moving feast, and it's a you know it's one of these things that I guess you know it's still very like even though it's everywhere, it's still nascent, mm. um, and we can only improve. Mm. Um, I, I actually really enjoyed um, Ed's kind of idea that we don't necessarily need to shoehorn AI into absolutely everything, and I feel like we're mm. possibly at risk of that. Yeah. I don't know, guys. What do you reckon? Like alarm clocks in the in the seventies, yeah, like yeah. put a clock on it. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Well, like I mean, I've, I, I I use the I have this analogy which I generally use around you know technology inserted when technology is not required, mm. um, which is yeah. my, my my car. Right. The boot is an electric button that kind of unlocks the thing, mm. which is you know common in most cars that are kind of up to ten or twelve years old. Mm. Prior to that, you would just have like a spring loaded latch. You'd kind of pull it and it would release and it'd be a hook and it was yeah. you know, it was dumb technology, but it worked. Yeah. So when the electric button that opens my boot failed and I had to pay six hundred dollars to get it fixed, mm. oh. all, all I could think was if this was just a latch with a spring and a hook, yeah. I would not have to pay this money to fix this thing. So it's unnecessary. Yeah. Making things unnecessarily technological is one of my kind of bugbears. I don't know, guys, what do you reckon? Yeah, in an AI context, anyway. it, it's it's interesting. Like you do hear a lot of um, drop in drop in the thing of the day to get people's attention. Mm. You, you, I guess, if you're trying to get people to take a risk and do something different or new or interesting, you have to put a fair bit of jam on it to make it attractive to people. Um, and and that's where things, you know, the the sort of double acronym of the day gets thrown in. I, I think. Um, <sighs> We had we had to um, have a conversation about a piece for the trip, which is the internal mag here about what do we write about it, and we kind of there was a lot of conversations going around, and we were talking a lot about, um, I guess, um, thinking about how we design correctly um, in the way that Laura talked about the in the first part of the the conversation. How do we weed bias out? How do we make sure um, people are heard and listened, and um, diverse experiences are a part of it. Um, uh, and so forth, and we we talked a lot about that. I'm still I'm I'm going to say I'm in the minority camp in in the show at the moment, and say I think there's a lot that we can get from this, but we're doing a pretty ham-fisted job of it to start with. Mm. Um, and I'd like to think that we're at the start of something good, but if we extrapolate our experience of what we've had in the past ten years and say this is what it's going to be like, we can lose a lot. Um, so I think. I think what they're what they're doing with this report and saying, "Hey, can we just um, pause for a second and have a talk about it?" is good, um, but I'm also reluctant to just kind of extrapolate that. And uh, like Ed suggested, we can't sort of sit there under the Bodhi tree and have a, a long chat about this every time someone wants to do something. Mm. Um, we have to um, we have to, in some ways, go for it, um, but um, with a mindset of going is the start and refining and thinking and shaping is the constant process. Mm. But I, I mean, is, is going for it to like if you if you do the pause, someone else is going to go for it. How do we convince yeah. everyone to pause? Well, you can't, you can't, yeah. and you can't. Um, the, I think the job of a hand, the job of a handbrake. No, so I hope you're not listening yet. The, jo- <laughs> the job of a handbrake is to is to sort of say, hey, we need time to um, to to gather our thoughts about this. Um, it's not to stop it, and I, I don't think that's what um, this report's trying to do. Mm. 
but also we can't have a, a state of perpetual um, uh, conversation and um, and checking in and consultation, yeah, all of that. So yeah. it's it's hard. Maze, do do you have any anything on that? Yeah, I think I think it's a really important conversation to have with in regards to AI and human rights. Like when I think about it as an artist and, you know, it was touched on like things that don't matter like video games and I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, about that. And, you know, often um, when an artist is given some tech for the first time, they can feel very like, the tech is controlling their output and, you know, they have to shape themselves to whatever this new tool um, wants them to. But the really cool art and the really um, experimental and innovative stuff is where you try to make the tech bend to your way, you know, the other way around. Like you're meant to be trying to empower you, um, people, society, culture, whatever, through the tech, not the other way around. Um, And I think that for me, that's what talking about the human rights um, elements of it really touches on, you know, it's like, hang on, we've gone the reverse way again, where the tech is controlling and impacting our thoughts and actions rather than the other way around where we're, you know, meant to be empowered by it. We've got a couple of minutes left for some events. Maze, what's happening in Games World? Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about the Free Play Independent Games Award Ceremony is this Sunday night, so 7.30pm on their YouTube channel um, and in their virtual event space called The Zone, Ooh. which is where people can come in with little pixel art avatars and there's, um, there's a zine corner, there's a a beer garden and everything, and so that's been pretty beautiful. Um, but, yeah, Free Play is a Melbourne-based festival um, that we know and love here on the show, celebrating really cool indie, experimental, artistic, innovative games. So if you're looking for some of the best games to play, definitely um, look up the Free Play Independent Games Festival um, and their YouTube YouTube channel this this Sunday evening, yeah. What what would you like to put a ribbon on in terms of games at the moment? Just um, first thoughts. What's what's a fun type of game to play right now? Oh my god! Um... That, okay, that sounds <laughs> like in, well, in anyway, that's the end of the show. In yeah. less than ten seconds. <laughs> Maybe maybe take that one on notice and we'll come back to that one. Um, it's been uh, a great show tonight. Uh, thank you very much to Ed Santow and to uh, Laura Summers for um, getting out on the beat and uh, having that chat. Um, uh, we'd all been looking forward to that one. Um, thanks very much to Dan and Mays and to Elizabeth McCarthy, our talks producer. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.